That's great. That's awesome. Are the Geigers in here? Anywhere? Oh, maybe I'll catch them next time. I was going to say, you did it. That's awesome. So, <clears throat> that's good, good stuff. Well, good morning. Got water on the Holy Scriptures. Goodness sakes. I had to get a different water bottle. You might have seen me going back there. The, uh, the one that was out here was already opened. I know. You can't drink. No. That's just. I went to take a drink out of my son yesterday after doing some yard work. And fortunately, I poured it into a cup. And it looked like a science project in that thing. I mean, there was all kinds of goods floating in that thing. So <clears throat> all of that's just extra. I have no idea why I said all that. But I am glad I, I get to see you guys again so soon, just after a couple weeks. That, that thrills my heart to be back up with you again so soon, and I'm just blessed to have this opportunity from Mark. He sent me some pictures this morning of uh, just Grayson over the weekend. He's still at the Citadel, but he is no longer considered a knob, I guess, uh, officially. Um, those, okay, I should stick with preaching. So anyway... Um, but they, they are down there for the weekend with their whole family and, and having a good time. So uh, we're going to continue in Acts. And um, I'm preaching today on from fearful to fearless followers. Uh, I've really been convicted a lot lately, uh, not just because of what we're going through in Acts, my own quiet time, my own studying of Scripture and preaching, uh, my spiritual walk. I've really been convicted of the necessity to emphasize the gospel more frequently, uh, not just in my own personal life, but certainly uh, when we get up and preach and teach and open the scriptures, because everything in this book points to Christ and the cross. Everything, all the stories, all the concepts, even Mark's sermon last week on prayer, uh, the, the sermon I did a few weeks back on uh, suffering and, and Satan's attacks in our life and it all points us towards the central theme of there's God, there's brokenness, God made a way, there's redemption, and we, we can have the possibility of everlasting life. And I just feel like if, if we do anything else other than make sure that point's known, we've done a disservice uh, to Christ and to the gospel. So you're going to hear a lot about the gospel this morning, partly because the text talks about it, but also because... Uh, that's just on my heart, and I, I want to prepare you for that, I guess, is why I'm saying that in advance, because even going through Acts, I mean, we know Acts is about the church and, you know, the church defined and all this stuff, but there's so many concepts and terms and things we use in Scripture, even as we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, that just kind of, we have a preconceived idea, we've been introduced to the, the, the verbiage or the concept before, and we can just kind of check out a little bit, and I, I want to encourage you, don't do that. Uh, if at all possible, stay stay engaged. And certainly the theme of the Holy Spirit has been what has just been running through this book uh, from the very beginning, uh, even back into Luke's narrative of the gospel. Like we can accomplish nothing apart from the Holy Spirit, and that's why Scripture teaches us be clothed in the Spirit. And certainly the, the story continues there. So just to kind of give you a little bit scenario of where we're at here in 14.1. We're going to read the first seven verses here in just a second. But Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 were just commissioned to go out and start what would be the first of three missionary journeys that Paul would take. And so Paul and Barnabas were selected by the church and the apostles, and everyone felt that they were uh, the ones that God had laid on their hearts to be commissioned and to go out and teach and spread the gospel throughout the world. And so that's what they've been doing. They've been going and traveling throughout the Mediterranean, Mediterranean there we go, uh, region, preaching the gospel. And the reason I've titled today's sermon even uh, fear, from fearful to fearless followers of God, that's what we see happening here in the church. That's what's happening in our narrative today. But I think that's our journey as well. When we look at the apostles and the disciples, long before we get to the point of them being bold and courageous and fearless, we see the opposite taking place. And we'll get into that more in Resurrection Week. But we see them living in fear. We see the night from the garden, them rejecting and, and fleeing, not because they, they don't agree with Christ's message, but because of the fear of persecution, the fear of what if we're next to be crucified, and we see them fleeing from him. And I was thinking this morning, even as we were singing, I was thinking to myself, Matthew, where were you? 
I mean, you would go on to write one of the Gospels. Where were you the night Christ was crucified and taken in the garden? You're, you're noticeably silent. Uh, uh, Simeon, uh, where, where were you? And Andrew, and, and on and on we could go. We know there was a couple that kind of lingered on the fringe, and Peter and John and certainly Mary and some of the women. But most fled and most hid and hid in the upper room until all was said and done, until the Holy Spirit came and with power emboldened them with tremendous boldness to go out and live a fearless life. And I believe that's what God wants us to do as well. I believe he wants the gospel to impact our life so tremendously that we break off the shackles of fear that the enemy would use in our life and just live a courageous, bold life for the kingdom of God. I believe that's what he wants for us. So I want to start with our text. We're going to be, uh, as I said, the first seven verses of chapter 14. Follow along. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you, if you need one, get one. Check with us here at the church. I mean, you need to have a set of the scriptures. You can't possibly grow in your faith if you don't have the scriptures. But please follow along with me as, as I read the holy word of God to you, starting in verse number one. Again, the context is about Paul and Barnabas, and the scripture says, Now at Iconium, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and catch this phrase, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, again, catch this phrase, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city, they were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, And to stone them, they learned of it. Paul and Barnabas learned of this plot. And they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. I want to encourage you with a couple thoughts this morning. I don't have like point one, two, three, four, or five, anything like that. I just went down through the text and said, God, what are you saying here in the text? What does this mean for us? What did this mean for them? And the first thing I want to encourage you with is simply this. Share Jesus boldly. Share Jesus boldly. Be fearless. You know, there's a a famous quote, and I'm so guilty of in my younger years in theology and in ministry of uh, assigning this quote, as many have, to St. Francis. But the quote is, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. There's actually, in none of St. Francis's works, will you find that quote anywhere. Uh, there's a couple things that are kind of close to that, where he kind of talks about your actions, your deeds need to match up with what you're saying, but you won't find that quote. So if you use that, you might want to correct that. I certainly have had to correct it in my own life. But even then, I think to myself, even if he had said it, it's an erroneous quote, You can't possibly preach the gospel just by your lifestyle. And I understand the meaning behind it because I love the meaning behind that of, listen, people need to look at us and they need to see Christ. But I think for a lot of of us in Christianity today, that has become the crutch. That has become the tool that we use to avoid speaking boldly, speaking out for Christ. And so we can just kind of sit back under the safety of that quote and of that characteristic and just kind of say, well, I want them to see Jesus in me. And if they see enough of Jesus, they'll be comfortable and say, hey, tell me about this gospel so I can know what I need to do to repent of my sins. That would be wonderful. I bet most of you in here have probably never had that experience happen in your life. If you have, let's, let's just do it. Show of hands. How many of you had people come to you and say, I realize I'm a sinner. I need to repent of my sins. I need Christ for eternal salvation just by watching how you live your life. Anybody? Wow, zero. Okay, well, maybe one or two, but zero. All right, so understand that 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 has to be true. Our actions have to match our words, but our words are what set people up to hear truth. Scripture says, how will they know unless someone preaches truth to them? How will they know unless they hear it from someone? And I want to encourage you, don't be fearful. Share Christ boldly, but understand you can't do it 
apart from the Holy Spirit. In our text, we read these phrases. They spoke in such a way. What way? A way with power, a way with authority. If you read earlier in Acts, people looked at them and said, who are these men? I know these disciples. They're not educated. They're not smart. They didn't grow up learning the Torah by heart and speaking all these different languages. What? How do they get this ability? They got it from the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we can look at our lives and say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the intellect to reason with people. People will get me in an argument and apologetically, I can't defend the faith, so I'm just not going to say anything. It's not up to you. Speak boldly of what Christ has done in your life and let the Holy Spirit be the one that brings transformation. Speak boldly. And of course, none has ever been more bolder than Christ. He is the perfect example because out of the same mouth where he calls the religious elite and the religious pious and the religious hypocrites, the same mouth that calls them serpents and you vipers and you crooked and perverse generation is the same mouth that reaches out to the prostitute and to the addict and to the down and out in society and says, I love you. There is hope for you. Come to me and you will never thirst again. Both take tremendous Boldness. Do you know how much boldness it takes to say to someone that is addicted and that is broken and that is just destitute to say, God loves you radically? It takes tremendous boldness to enter into that. And when we look at the context, especially of Acts as a whole, contextually speaking, here in this book, this is a direct result. I encourage you, take some time this week. Just read through the book of Acts. 28 chapters will not kill you, I promise. Divvy it up, it's four chapters a day, you can do it. Read through the big book and just underline or highlight every time you see them speaking with confidence, speaking with boldness, speaking with an attitude of not being ashamed. You will be blown away at how frequently you see this taking place. Why? Because that's what God expects of his followers, to speak with boldness. And isn't it interesting that the first characteristic, the first thing the Holy Spirit imparts to the followers of Christ is boldness to go out on Pentecost and to leave that room and go out into the world. Some of you this morning, you need to leave that room you're in and get out there and start proclaiming the truth of Jesus. Isaiah 58, 1 says it this way, Shout with a loud voice of a trumpet blast. I did that last week and affected some hearing aids and or last time I preached. There's times when we preach, we should use a loud voice. We should proclaim truth. We should not be ashamed. It's by preaching and exhortation and rebuke that God brings changes. And so Isaiah says, proclaim with a loud voice, with a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. I love that. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Did you catch that? Be bold in proclaiming. Now, Let me tell you what it means to be bold and what it doesn't mean to be bold a little bit. Because some of you are going to run with this. The next thing you know, you're all going to have banners with posters on them marching in front of buildings. And I don't want that to happen. All right? I I want you to hear a little bit about what it means to be bold. Being bold is not necessarily always having to be loud. Some of the most boldest, most courageous people I know in my life are soft-spoken, spirit-filled men and women that know what to say at the right time and just how to say it. So don't think that it means you've got to be louder than the next person in the room. Another thing about being bold and being fearless is when people that are fearless have something to say, they say it. They're not worried about what other people are going to think, what other people are going to perceive. They simply speak the truth that God has placed inside of them because they are so confident in who God is. Fearless people know when and how to say something. So often we can just be so brash with our words and not even give a thought to how our language and how our words affect other people. And we don't give thought to that. And we need to be sensitive to, are the words of my mouth going to push someone closer towards Christ or push them away? It amazes me in Christian circles how flippantly and loosely we can throw things around and talk about things and not even give consideration to how is this going to affect other people. A lot of you know some details about my personal life and my personal story because I share them from time to time. And maybe someday God will allow me on this platform to share my whole testimony when he's ready for that. But some of you know I've been divorced before. I've been broken. I've committed adultery. I've had all kinds of addiction and sin in my background and in my life. And it amazes me, having come through that, how often I'll hear Christians talk to other Christians about how horrible 
divorced people are and how that should never be an option. And, oh, adultery, that's one of the words. I can't imagine how anybody would ever. And I just sit there quietly and I absorb that because I know kind of what's behind that. And I know where that's coming. And I think to myself, if that feels that way to me, how's it going to feel to somebody that's just kind of coming into the church for the first time to say, I want to hear about this Jesus? Does it mean we don't speak truth? No, absolutely not. We do speak truth. We do represent what Scripture says, but there's a way to do it. There's a time to do it. And we need to understand being boldest doesn't mean you just say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it. It must be spirit-led and spirit-filled. i got so much to say I haven't stopped to drink and I'm about to die, so pause. Another characteristic is fearless people are not ashamed. I think of some of the examples in Scripture of Ruth just being bold, walking away from a nationality, an identity, a country, and saying, I don't care what people are going to say about me. I'm going with you, and your God's going to be my God. What boldness. Mary, uh, John, Peter, Daniel, Joseph. I mean, Scripture's full, full of people that were unashamed. And then lastly, people that are fearless must be good at discretion and understanding. You must have discretion and understanding. And you and I can't have these things unless the Holy Spirit is the one that is guiding us and leading us. I, I can tell you from experience, I've tried this in my own ability without the Holy Spirit of discretion, discernment, wisdom, when to speak, when not to speak. Most times it's a colossal failure. I'll say something and then later I'll be like, oh, why did I say that? Because I was depending on my own wisdom instead of sitting back and saying, Holy Spirit, do you want me to say this or should I just be quiet in the moment? And I started thinking as I was putting together this message, what are some of the things that we're afraid of that, that keep us living in a fearful life? And certainly even if you look at social studies and, and things that have gone on culturally, especially in our own country, but it's probably true throughout the world. The one thing that holds men back the most for men that we're fearful of is we don't want to look weak. That's a good time for you men to say Amen. See, you don't want to say it because you're afraid someone might think you're weak. So that's why you're not saying it. But the reality of it is, you men in here, in the depth of your soul, you don't want to appear weak. doesn't matter if you're the smallest guy in the room or the biggest guy. There's a part that's hardwired into us as God has made us to, to be the caretakers of creation and uh, to oversee and protect our wives and our families. There's a part in us that is just fearful that we will be weak. And we don't want to admit a failure. That's why we are horrible at asking for directions. Uh, all the stereotypes, they're stereotypes, but they're that way for a reason because they're true. Right? Christmas morning, you know what this is like? You get the toy and, you know, there's, you got to be an engineer basically to put the little Lincoln log set together now. And, and they always put extra screws in there. I think they do that just to mess with you so you can like get done and be like, wow, I colossally blew this. And I'm just going to throw those away and assume that they figured I need a few extra. Go ride your bike, honey, and hopefully, you know, the seat don't fall off along the way. How many times have my kids played with toy? My daughter's bike right now. My wife's like, why isn't the seat working on it? I don't know. must be the engineer. No, Daddy put it together. That's probably what the issue is, right? We don't want to look like we're weak. And so we protect, we hide, we don't talk about our addictions, we don't talk about our lust struggles, we don't talk about, you know, our fears over money and our inability to accurately provide for our family. And so we just kind of live this fearful life. And, and, and when we live that way, we're not bold. And for women, the number one thing that, that I was reading this week that, that women really struggle fear-wise is in this area of inadequacy. Am I going to measure up? Am I going to be a good enough mom? Am I going to be attractive enough? Am I, am I going to be valued? And will I have worth? I just thought of, of the weight of the fear of these things that just keep us from being bold. And the enemy loves to prey on our fears. And, and I can tell you this with confidence. If you're living a fearful life, you will never be bold for the kingdom of God. You won't. You just mark that down. If you have fear and fear controls your life, you will not be bold for the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And I think sometimes the enemy does such a job of preying on those fears 
just enough to get us to lose sight that he has no control over us. It's like Christ has come and freed us and opened the prison doors and said, you are free, I've taken care of it, you can go live your life, and we just sit back on the bench waiting to get out of that cell and actually live life, failing to go forth into the freedom God has called us to. I love this verse, Romans 8, 1 through 2. Paul says this, the same guy that's on this missionary journey with Barnabas says, there is therefore now no condemnation. No, none, zero, zilch, nada. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, essentially there is a law and that law is God's moral law and it has been established to show you that you are not good enough. You are jacked up. You are broken. You are a sinful individual. Man, woman, boy, child, girl. It does not matter. You are broken and you fail to live up to the law of God. But the Holy Spirit, when we go into Christ Jesus, when we enter into relationship with Him, He has freed us from that law. He has given us life. And as a result of that work, there is now no condemnation against you and me. And what that word condemnation literally means is worthy of damnation. Because before Christ, when you are not in Christ, guess what? You are worthy of damnation. You are doomed apart from Christ. The wrath of God dwells and abides on your head if you are not in active, obedient relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. That is heavy. That is heavy. But that is accurate teaching in Scripture. It is impossible to separate the two concepts. To go from being worthy of damnation to gloriously free, to leave the one and enter into freedom, why would we ever want to live in fear again of what the enemy can do? So the next time Satan rolls up next to you at the stoplight and whispers in your ear about how horrible you are and how you're failing and how you're weak as a man and how you're not significant enough as a woman and how you're just never going to measure up, whisper right back to him, I ain't guilty no more. There is now no condemnation. That's why I have no problem talking about my addiction, my sex issues, my, my addiction to pornography, the adultery I committed as a pastor, the brokenness that I've caused in life. You know why I don't mind talking about it is because there's no condemnation. You can judge me all you want. I don't care. I won't stand before you someday in heaven and have to explain myself. I'll stand before the king and I'll say, you said there's no condemnation. And by the blood of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit, I put my trust, my hope, my confidence in that alone. And that's all that matters. The story is so amazing what happens in this book. So Paul and Barnabas, they preach boldly. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. But in the middle of preaching boldly, Paul sees someone that needs to be healed, looks at his eyes and says, I, just, I discern that someone that needs to be healed. He heals them. He heals them. And then look what happens in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes. I was thinking if Mark and I got together and did some co-preaching, if he would be thought of as Zeus or Hermes. But he would probably be Hermes, because the scripture says, because he was the chief speaker, and that's how it should be. It's a remarkable story. I mean, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, all right, they preached the gospel, and I'm going to break that down for you in just a second. And they heal someone, and the crowd freaks out, and it's like, the gods are here. Zeus and Hermes have shown up, and there's a temple right outside of town. It says, 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men. Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And I just want to give you a word of caution of what's happening here in the text and what we have a tendency to do as well. 
what happened is the crowd went from hearing about the Creator to focusing and worshiping the creation. They took their eyes off of the God that Paul and Barnabas were talking about and put them on the creation, which is what Paul would later talk about in Romans chapter 1, and begin to worship the creation instead of the Creator. And we have a tendency to do that. That's in our base nature. That's why we elevate pastors and spiritual leaders and teachers and whether it's someone you see in person or someone that you watch online or you read or what, we have a tendency to take the creation. We're like, wow, if I could just have that boldness, if I could just have their faith, if I could be funny and charming, if I could be charismatic, if I could be this and I could be that, wow, then God would really think I'm something and then I could be used. And man, they're just incredible. And then the moment they fall, well, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with that. Why? Because we begin to put our hope and our focus on the creation. Let me tell you something. Mark, myself, Matthew, Christian, anybody that stands up here and proclaims you the word of God is a broken, jacked up sinner just like you. And you best not be looking to us as your example of how to love your wives, how to do it right, how to have your quiet time all the time, how to always be loving as a couple, My wife and I, we never fight. We're just always just floating through life. You're beautiful. You're handsome. I know, I know. Our kids never complain. They're angels. They're as depraved as you can get. All right? Does that mean we don't look at each other for encouragement examples? No, but we don't look at each other as the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. Always has been, always will be. And what we see happening here in the text is this. People are drawn towards the miracle. See, they proclaim the gospel and everyone's like, hmm. But then they do miraculous works and then the crowd moves in with excitement. Just like with Jesus, feeding 5,000 all of a sudden. woohoo! Free McDonald's every day. Let's follow this guy, right? People are drawn towards the supernatural, towards the powerful, towards the miracles. They want, they want a miracle in their own life. There, nothing bothers me more than the fake gospel that's getting espoused by all these false demonic teachers claiming to be preachers of the gospel today that are teaching this nonsense about, oh, God just wants to bless you. Just give a little bit of seed and you're going to have the best life you've ever had. Oh, just, just call in our, our hotline. God wants you to be healthy. Just send in $5. I'll make it happen. <laughs> I prayed over this cloth, especially for you. It is garbage. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It is garbage. Christ never calls you to live your best life now. Sorry, Joel, it doesn't work that way. Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. Christ says, expect your family to hate you and reject you. Christ says, you, you want to follow me? Guess what? I don't have a place to lay my head at night. If that's what you want to sign up for, come on. You won't find in Scripture Christ saying, hey, follow me, and I'm going to give you a $7.5 million salary. You are going to be driving a Bentley. You're going to be healthy. And if you're not, it's because you've got sin in your life. You won't find it. But we're drawn to that because it's attractive to us. We're drawn towards that. And I want you to understand something. The greatest miracle, are you ready for this? The greatest miracle ever accomplished is the gospel. It's not saying to someone, get up and walk. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not opening the eyes of the blind. It's not walking on water. The greatest miracle ever accomplished by our Abba is the gospel. So now's where I move into the portion of the sermon where I'm going to preach to you. The gospel is not, hear me on this, the gospel is not telling people that God loves them. The gospel is not telling people or having an understanding of your own that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. The gospel is not telling people that God desires good things for you. None of that is the gospel. The gospel is not about you and what you get. The gospel is about Jesus and what he does and has done. Period. So I'm going to break it down for you now, okay? 
not rap style. I thought about maybe I'd write one for you, but not today. You, I appreciate the please, but it'll come, just not today. Okay, so let me give it to you. You can follow the acronym of the word gospel if you want. This is the gospel. You ready? The gospel, first and foremost, is God, period. Everything that has ever been or ever will be is only because of God. God has always existed eternally outside of the concepts of time. He always has been and always will be. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is none even close to Him. There is no other God, period. Everything that we know, everything that we see, everything that we touch, we experience, we formulate a thought about, everything that we could ever even comprehend is only because of God, period. Without God, there is nothing. There is no nothing. There is no black space. There is no incident matter just floating around. There is God and God alone. Everything has started with God. And in Him, everything has purpose and has glory and has life. And apart from God, there is nothing. So we start with God. But we move from God onto ourselves. Because God, in His infinite love, under no obligation, and not because He needed us or needed something to love, only out of His good pleasure did He say, I want to create man and women. And He made us in His image, along with the rest of creation. And so understand something. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, we fell too. Collectively, it's all of ourselves that are bound in sin and just destined towards a life of separation apart from the grace of God. All of us are guilty. Sin came through Adam, but it has continued down through every individual that is born, including the baby in the Geiger's belly this morning, conceived in sin, and apart from the grace of God, will be a hellion for the rest of its life. Don't tell him I said that. I'm going to leave that out second service. All right? Understand something, though. We are all sinners. We are depraved. You will never appreciate the grace of God until you fully understand the true depravity that you and I have hardwired into our DNA. And catch this. You know what caused perfection in paradise to fall? For the world that God created to be destroyed, it wasn't murder, it wasn't hatred, it wasn't envy, lust, adultery, coveting. You know what caused everything to fall apart? Simple disobedience. Something that we would consider one of the most minutiae, smallest of sins. Disobedience ruined it all. So if you're here this morning thinking, I'm not that bad. I haven't done all of these major things. I'm sure some of you have been disobedient at some point in your life because you were a child at some point. Disobedience ruined it all. And as a result, we are all sinners. Which brings us to the S, sin. Sin is one of the heaviest things we can walk around with, and it's, it's part of us. As I said, we, we carry it from the very beginning on, and we're weighed down by it, and we're entrapped by it, and we're paralyzed by it, and it keeps us from being all that God has called us to be. But in the middle of all of this brokenness, God said, I'm going to make a payment I'm going to pay for the sins of mankind. Romans chapter 6 tells us the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a sin that requires a payment. And that payment was made by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. Jesus came down in the form of flesh and lived the only perfect life ever recorded so that he could pay for our sins. And scripture tells us, oh, if we could just dwell on the cross and what Christ went through. It tells us in Isaiah, he wasn't attractive. You wouldn't look at Jesus walking by on a country road with a bunch of his buddies and go, wow, that guy is good looking. It says he was so plain and so ordinary, you wouldn't even be drawn to him with your eyes. So you can forget the Jim Caviezel version. It's out. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was probably an ugly dude just walking around sharing the love of Abba with the world. Isaiah would go on to tell us it was by his wounds and his stripes that we are cleansed. It was the blood of Jesus Christ, of an innocent lamb that was shed for us. Isaiah gets so descriptive, it says that he was beaten to a pulp so bad, he was not even recognizable as being a human being. Christ didn't just go through a simple piercing in his hands and feet for you and I. His body was destroyed. So that we could know him. He paid the ultimate 
payment. So when he hung on that cross for you and for me, he literally bore, as scripture teaches in the New Testament, every sin ever he committed. So when I committed adultery, every naked woman I've looked at and lusted after, every time I've lied, every time I've stolen, every time I've cheated, every time I was mean and lost my ten, everything I have ever done, Christ took in his body that guilt That horrible, nasty, disgusting, volatile sin that is destructive. And he said, I will absorb that. And he didn't just do it for me. He did it for every human being. Can you imagine the weight of all that guilt paid by Christ for you and me to know him? He took a payment so that everyone that believes in him, everyone that puts their faith in him alone, everyone that falls down and says, you are Lord and I trust you would be given life. Not just average, ordinary, everyday life. Life to the fullest. Everlasting life. Life eternal. Life in his presence. Life free of guilt. Free of sin. There's an exchange that takes place when we come to Christ. Paul would say it this way in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. We know that, right? Most of us stop there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want that boldness, right? Paul's bold. Look what he says in the rest of the verse. For it. What is it? It is the gospel. For the gospel is what? The power of God. That is why we proclaim the gospel that I just gave to you. The gospel changes lives. It is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not a self-help book out there that is going to give you the power you need to change your life. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you catch the weight of it? The gospel will change you, it will save you, it will redeem you. And without it, the wrath of God will abide on your head. And when you breathe your last breath, your fate will be sealed. So Paul and Barnabas show just tremendous humility, saying, why are you doing this? We're just men like you. It's not us. And they put glory where it belongs. They point back to God in heaven. He said, he's the one who made the heaven and the earth to see. Everything that you see, everything that's happened, it's all about God. So look what happens. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 14. I know you're like, how are you going to get to 15, dude? It's all right. I'm almost done. 15 is going to be a quick summary. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, 19, but Jews came from Antioch. And Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, look look at this, right in the middle of the story, persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Sound that crazy to you? I'm. Forget the Super Bowl. I want a ticket to this. They beat Paul to a pulp with rocks to the point that they drag him out of the city. All right? It's not like he's got a little bruise on his arm. Okay? They pulverize him with stones, drag him out of the city, and leave him for dead. The disciples go over there, and they're like, yep, he looks dead all right. And then Paul goes, ah, anybody got Advil? You would not believe that last rock that hit me. (laughs) Stands up, does the opposite of what I would do, and walks right back into the city. You know what that takes? Boldness. That is fearless living. You might be thinking, well, if I got beat with a bunch of rocks and stood up and walked, Again, period, I would be fearless too. 
Paul's fearlessness was not driven by the fact that he withstood some stones. His fearlessness was driven by the fact he had an encounter with Jesus, and he placed his hope, his life, his faith, and all his confidence in who Christ is and what Christ said. So he gets up and he walks back into the city, and then the next day they leave. Don't you know? I'm, I read verses like this, and I'm like, I want more narrative. Don't you know there were some amazing conversations taking place around these events? So what'd you do yesterday? Oh, it's not big. It's an okay day. Right? That's how we talk. Well, it started out, people thought I was Zeus. And uh, that didn't go over too well because I said, hello, are you crazy? Then this guy in the back of the crowd picks up a stone. Next thing you know, I'm seeing birds like I didn't even know existed in every color known to man. And like, it's amazing. It's amazing. I want you to catch this. The call to follow to love, to serve, to pour yourself out. The call that Christ gives us isn't for the faint of heart. It will cost you tremendously. It will cost you tremendously. Paul, stoned to the point of death, shipwrecked multiple times, bitten by poisonous snakes, put in in tar, lit on fire. I mean, Paul went through enormous things before ultimately being beheaded. Following Christ will cost you dearly. You will have trouble if you follow him. Do you, do you get that? So please understand, when I'm telling you to embrace the gospel, I'm telling you to put your cowboy boots on. That's for you, Mark and Becca. Get up on the horse and get ready for the ride of your life. Because you're going to get beat. <laughs> you're going to get beat up good. It is amazing. My wife and I were recounting this morning. It is amazing. This is not about me at all. I I pray. I trust God. It won't come across that way. It is amazing the last three or four times I've got up to preach the spiritual attacks our family has gone under. I was up last night till 2 o'clock in the morning just battling spiritually, praying, not able to sleep. Got up three hours later. Somehow I have energy for you. I don't know how. I exhausted all of it just worrying about my daughter going to prom, but God is gracious. <laughs> Paul would say at the end of 22, 21, 22, he says, when they had preached the gospel, I love that Paul, think of what they went through. And Paul is just like, let's keep at it. Woo! Let's preach. Let's tell people about Jesus when they preached the gospel to that city, Derby. Then, uh, and had many disciples, then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That word tribulations just has to do, I mean, in the Greek, the root of the Greek there, it refers to a grape being crushed for wine. Do you catch the weight of that? The, the pressure, the pressing that Christ says, expect, if you're going to follow me and enter the kingdom of heaven, expect to be crushed like a grape being made into wine. So chapter 14 ends, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch. And we see this pattern repeating. 15 is a similar pattern. This is why I'm going to summarize it for you really quickly. 15 is a similar pattern that, that has been going on throughout the book of Acts. There's tremendous blessing The Holy Spirit is working in powerful, bold ways. Then there's an opportunity for division or for brokenness to come up, just like we saw with Paul and Barnabas being accused of being false gods. They could have went with that, and the gospel of God would have been thrown off track. Church would have been divided. Can you imagine the confusion and division of the church? Division always comes along, which creates an opportunity, depending on how the response is. We've talked about that week in and week out. There's an opportunity to respond in the right way. And when we respond in the right way, we see spiritual blessing, the work of the Holy Spirit again. And this pattern repeats itself, spiritual blessing. Holy Spirit working. Oh, division. Opportunity. Handled the right way. Oh, spiritual blessing. Holy Spirit continues on and on and on and on. So 15 is all about this. There's a group of Pharisees that decide the gospel that I just proclaimed to you is not enough. In order to have Christ and eternal life, you also have to follow the law and be circumcised. Now, the Gentiles were like, "Mm, Paul, Barnabas, could we get a word check on this? I mean, the text is quite humorous if you read it, and I'm not trying to be crass, but it says there was much debate. 
I would have been the leading voice in that debate if I was a Gentile at that point in time. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> we need a prayer meeting. I need every apostle that's ever even hinted at seeing Jesus right here, right now. So they have this huge thing. And really what is at play here, what is at work, is an attack on the gospel saying that faith alone in Christ is not enough. You have to do something in order to be justified. You have to live a certain way. You have to, you have to be a certain way in order for God to look at you and be okay. And so they took this debate to all the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas carried it. And graciously, Peter and James, different ones, stand up and speak and say, no, 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 no. God saves by faith alone. And they established that as one of the major tenets and doctrines of the faith we still adhere to today. They wrote a letter and sent it back, and it says, when the church read the letter, there was much rejoicing. Heck, yeah, there was. <laughs> Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! Buffet for lunch, right? It's going to be a good day at the church. And this is my point. The gospel is always under attack. People will always try and add to it and change it and tweak it. But there's only one true gospel. Don't bend your ear to someone that has something that sounds really good and pleasing. Turn your eyes towards Scripture and say, what does Christ say? Is it taught in the book? Because if it's not taught in the book, you might as well put it on the fire pit in the backyard and forget about it. It's garbage. Chapter 15 ironically ends with Paul and Barnabas getting into a pretty, pretty serious fight with each other. No punches are thrown that we know of. But it says they departed from each other in sharp disagreement. Because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark and Paul said, no, last time we took that dude, he abandoned us in the middle of the journey. I don't want to do ministry with him again. It says they got so device, so, so intensely in their debate with one another that they literally parted ways. And I read that and I thought, wow, thank you for that gift, God. You mean even the Apostle Paul was jacked up after he became the Apostle Paul? Yeah. Because you know what? Neither one of these guys were following the Holy Spirit if they left in the sharp division between one another. Now, ultimately, God somehow works this out. We're not told a lot more detail about how that happens, but what it teaches me is this, and I put this at the bottom of your bulletin, our humanity always forces its way to the surface. It doesn't matter if you're the Apostle Paul, if you're Travis, if you're Nikki, if you're Hannah, Matt. It doesn't matter who you are. Humanity will always come out, right? It teaches us the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit in our life. I told my son Mikey last night, there are, you know, it, it's hard sometimes for all of us to stay consistent with Christ every day. But the first time you take a day off will be the day you get defeated because the enemy never takes a day off. We need the Holy Spirit in our life. Without Him, we constantly will be following our own emotions, feelings, experiences, and ultimately it will drive us to live fearful instead of fearless. The book of Acts ends, the very last verse in chapter 28, ends with this statement, Paul boldly preaching while in prison in Rome. I I found that just such a gift from God as I was reading through Acts. I was like, the very last verse says Paul was still boldly preaching. In fact, it says he was preaching so boldly that no one even tried to stop him. Isn't that awesome? I leave you with this. Proverbs 28 one says, The wicked flee. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. But the righteous are bold as a lion. You don't see the lion fleeing. He stands courageous, strong, top of the food chain. Ain't nobody going to mess with that lion. He's king of his dominion. That's how God sees you because of the cross and the gospel. He wants you to be as bold as a lion, fearful of nothing. Fearful of nothing, especially man. What is man? What are you going to do to me? Take my life? Awesome. I'll be with Jesus. What are you going to do to me? Make fun of me? <laughs> Be bold. God, give us boldness. Stand with me, if you will. We're going to close in prayer.
Father, I thank you for the gospel. It is the power of life, power to salvation, as Paul said in Romans 1, 7, 16, and 17. What a tremendous gift that not only you died on the cross, but you gave us the word of God that illuminates us, that enlightens our eyes to see the beginning to the end. We are so blessed in this country at this point in time in history to have the completed word of God in front of us, to see it all unfolded. How many countless generations before us of millions and millions of people, all they had was one section to cling to. And yet we know your plan from the very beginning all the way to the very end where John cries, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I pray that this morning, Father. I pray that you would come quickly. I pray that the soles of our shoes would not hit the lobby before Abba, Father, sends you back into our planet to rescue us. How glorious that would be. But if it is not your plan and your timing for it to happen in this moment, then may we be as bold as lions when the soles of our feet step out of the aisle this morning. I pray if someone doesn't know you, Father, they don't have an understanding of what it means to have the righteousness of God in their life as opposed to the wrath of God. I pray they would come before you this morning. They would pray with with one of us down front here and say, I need Jesus. Nothing matters more than anything else than someone coming to faith in Christ. I would plead for that to happen if it's your will and if the Holy Spirit so wants to work. We give you this last offering as we close and I pray it's acceptable in your sight. I pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our God.